Well, uh, Ephesians uh, and chapter 2 in particular reminds us and tells us of uh, one great truth. It does far more than that, but I want us to pick up tonight one great truth. I think it's a really important truth in the age in which we live. We live in a time when you can be a, a famous author, for example, and, uh, and insist that, uh, that 50% of uh, the population aren't people who happen to have a cervix, but actually can be called, and given the name, women. But apparently if you say that, you get cancelled for whatever reason. And even when somebody does something wrong in public today, or perceived to be wrong, when people then apologise, instead of having that apology accepted, what do we have? We have people cancelled instead. There's no coming back, we're told, from that. Even though people have apologised, and even though people do far worse, people get now cancelled. We live in a culture, a cancel culture, where there is no forgiveness. There is no mercy. You see t-shirts and you see sometimes car stickers with no mercy on the front. Don't know what they're trying to say, but that's what culture says today, that we're not going to show any mercy. Now, that's a good thing. If Wales rugby team are playing next, whenever they are, next weekend, you don't want them to show any mercy to whoever they're playing against. But not in life. Well, we're going to look at a great truth about God this evening. A few months ago, I was watching a, a TV series, and there was a character in it. And in that series, this character was kind of front and central, uh, right throughout the, the kind of the drama. But his real identity was hidden until the very end of the story. We knew his real name, but we didn't realise who he really was in this kind of drama and what the drama went on, what he was really like. It was there all in front of us all the time, but as the, the way that the drama went, we missed it as you're watching it. We miss what he's really like. And as you watch it, you get to the end, perhaps you like kind of drama books or, or TV programmes and the like, and films, and you're kind of waiting for the big reveal at the end. We're not waiting for the big reveal with God. God has revealed to us, through his word, exactly what he is like. But here's the question for us tonight. What you and I believe about the living God, is it informed by scripture, what God has revealed to us about himself, or is it more informed by the world, or by what we think so often when I'm in prison and I'm speaking to the boys and they'll say, well, I think God is like this. Well, that's all very well, but it's not just not true, is it? I may think, you know, this lectern is, you know, made of plastic. And I may believe that and I may touch it and think, yeah, that's plastic, but it's not, is it? There is a truth about this that it's made of wood, some kind of wood. It's not plastic. No, I may think it is. But I'd be wrong in that thought. God has revealed what he is like to us. He has given his truth about himself to us. And 
we may not grasp the enormity of the truths about God until we are with him and like him, but that doesn't alter the truth. He has revealed what he is like to us. The issue is we're slow to understand. So we're going to look tonight about a glorious truth about God. Now, uh, just before Christmas, one of my nephews uh, has at last got engaged. And uh, now he's uh, delightedly planning the wedding, uh, which is uh, going to be in Ibiza. So we've been told we've got to go on holiday to Ibiza next year. There you go. Uh, but uh, he went to buy the engagement ring. And I mentioned this morning, years ago, it should be a month's salary. And uh, my uh, future niece uh, has got expensive tastes, according uh, to her future grandmother. And, uh, uh, and there you go. And so uh, I don't know how much the ring cost, but I know that when he went to the jewellers, that they would have shown the ring off. How do they do it? The jeweller gets a black cloth, don't they? And they get the black, and then they put the ring onto the black cloth. Why? Well, it highlights the beauty of the ring, doesn't it? There's no kind of distractions. It's, it's there. And the contrast between that, that black background and then, hopefully, I mean, I've seen the picture, but I didn't really look because I had no interest, really. Uh, but the diamond on there, you know, you want it big and sparkly, don't you? And the highlight, the purpose of the black cloth is to show off the ring. And actually, the purpose of the ring is to show off the big diamond that sits on the finger of this newly engaged girl. The centerpiece, the stone, the diamond, whatever the centerpiece is, should be, should be sparkling, and it should be the centerpiece. But sometimes that black cloth helps you to really see how glorious that centerpiece is. Well, we're going to do that tonight. And Paul, as he writes to the church in Ephesus, does that for us. Because as we were reading, do if you notice in Ephesians chapter 2, those first three verses give us, first of all, the problem. That's the, that's, we're seeing the black cloth, as it were, from God's word first of all. Paul gives it to us. And he gives that black cloth as black as it can possibly be. As for you, he says, in verse 1 of chapter 2, here's the black cloth. Here's the dark background, and it is very dark indeed. You were dead. Can't get much darker than that, can it? That's what he says, you were. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, he's obviously not talking uh, physically to the church in Ephesus here. He's not writing to them saying, you know, you used to be dead like Lazarus, and Jesus brought you back from, from the dead. He's not talking about that. He's talking about spiritually what we're like by nature as for you he says remember he's writing to a church to a, a body of christians to a group of christians he says you were dead that is dark isn't it in our relationship in your relationship he says with the living god you were dead as good as dead that's not the language that is half-hearted it's not language that can be misunderstood is it it's not a shade of gray you are either dead or you are alive. It is black and white language. There's no shade here. Paul writes to the Ephesians 
and gives them the reality of life outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, spiritually, you are dead. Sometimes I meet people often again in prison and they say, well, I'm a very spiritual person. And when you talk to them, they're not spiritual in the slightest. Mostly what they are is cannabis smokers, actually. And they think they're spiritual. They're kind of tree huggers or something. They like trees, whatever. They like a certain kind of music. Well, that's not spiritual. That's just liking certain things. Paul says, spiritually, you are dead by nature. That's it. Dead. Verse 2. You are following the ways in the world. Look at verse 2. In which you used to live. So you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You rebelled against God. That's what sin is. It's saying yes to me, no to God. My way is better than God's way. That's what sin is. I know better than God. So I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, where I want to do it, not what God wants me to do. And that's the way you used to live, Paul says in verse 2. When you followed the ways of this world and the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. It's a description of people who are not followers of Christ, who are outside of Christ, dead in their sins, going the way of the world, following Satan, even though they don't realize it, even if they don't say it every day, in going their own way, they are following the ways of the ruler of this world, who is happy to stay behind the scenes, directing as he sees fit. People living in that way, oblivious to real spiritual life, oblivious to the living God and his son Jesus Christ. Verse 3, you lived for yourselves. That's what sin does. The middle letter of sin is I for deliberately, isn't it? All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Well, why wouldn't you? We do what we want to do. Gratifying the cravings in our flesh. Our flesh says, do this, we do. Be gluttonous, eat too much. Do this, do that. Following his desires and thoughts. Well, why wouldn't you? After all, you're dead to spiritual things. So crack on, in a sense. Why is... Well, like the rest, we were by nature. We do these things, Paul says, by nature. It's in us. It's who we really are. It's natural for us to live like that because we live in a fallen world. And yes, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, of God's wrath, because of the way we live, because we live in rejection and rebellion of God. But we're being who we are. You know, people are told today, aren't they? What you've got to do to find happiness is to be who you are. Really? Is that really where you find happiness? Being who you truly are? If you think that is true, I'll take you... Well, I can't take you to prison at the moment because no visitors are allowed because of COVID. But, but if I could, I'd take you to prison and I'd introduce you to men, all of whom have been who they truly are. They really have. One of the shocks I had when I first started in prison was the problem of Valium. Now, to me, Valium is a drug for kind of 1970s housewives. But it's a huge problem, especially in Scotland and, in, and parts of Wales and the valleys and everything else. And boys who, who've taken it, what do they tell me? They say, oh, it, it, it basically takes away your inhibitions so you do what you really want to do. 
it, it helps you to be who you really are. And that's how these boys have ended up in prison. Because they're being who they really are. They're following the cravings of their flesh. They're following the desires of their heart. They're not, it's not making them do what they don't want to do. It's allowing them to do the things that they really do want to do. And off they go. That, Paul says, is what we're like by nature. That's our nature. And we deserve judgment for that. And that's the world in which we live. We're like my little tropical fish tank. Fish, shrimps, snails, all happy, mixing together. But the tank has still got algae in it. I've got plants in there growing to try and stop the algae growing. I've put CO2 in there, little bubbles, to stop the algae growing. I put anti-algae stuff in there. Started to kill the shrimp, so I didn't. I took it out. Still, the algae grows. Whatever I do, the algae grows. I clean the tank every week. I change half the water every week. Why does the algae grow? It's in the tank. It's in the nature. It's the environment in which the fish and the plants live. It's just there. It's the atmosphere in which the fish swim. And the fish are quite happy in it. It doesn't bother them in the slightest. It just bothers me because it looks awful on the glass. I can clean that up, but back it comes. That's what our life is like. That's the world in which we live. It's sin infested because, because it's our nature. It's in us. And we can clean up a bit, but it's in us. It's the world in which we live. And our hearts and our are full of sin and it's just in us. It's who we really are. It's not something we slip into. It's not a mistake we suddenly make. It's who we are. This is Paul's testimony. Paul is speaking honestly. He knows what he was like. He was a religious leader and yet he's the one who, who gets Christians murdered, executed. That's what Paul is like. But that's Paul telling us this. You can be moral or you can be immoral. You can live a, a really good, respectable life or you can live a life like my friends in prison. As for you, Paul says, you were dead. It's as simple as that. It's as cutting as that. It's as dark as that. We can turn over a new leaf and we can do this, that and the other. But our problem is that we're dead. Such a clear metaphor, isn't it? We, um, I was saying earlier, we live by the estuary in Lachar and uh, uh, when we went for a walk later on on Friday afternoon, uh, we saw five trees all in a row, all falling over, roots uprooted and earth everywhere and a complete mess and, and everything else and leaves I mean there's no leaves left you know leaves everywhere and you could pick up a leaf can't you and it looks nice and it, it might look quite alive and everything else but it might look good but the leaf is dead it looks alive but it's not connected to the tree it's dead and that's our problem that's why we're dead we're not connected to the giver of life who is Jesus Christ that's what we need. We don't need reconnection. You glue a leaf back onto the tree. It's not going to grow, is it? It needs real connection. 
It needs something to give it life. And someone who's dead needs life, and that's what we need. That's what Paul is talking about here. We're dead. And we mustn't minimize the problem that those outside of Christ faced. Face those people you work with and live by and everything else. If they're outside of Christ, spiritually they are dead. What does that drive us to do? Well, you can't give them life and I can't give them life, but God can. Surely that must drive us to pray for others. To ask God to give this life that we have experienced. To give that spiritual life that the Ephesians experienced. The Ephesians were dead. But God made them alive. And that must drive us to pray. Because dead people can't respond. You know, you can give the best gospel presentation ever. It can be clear and compelling and interesting and everything else. But people don't respond unless God opens their heart. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it, when Paul is walking by the river and Lydia and some other women are there and and Paul is preaching and we read there that the Lord opened Lydia's heart. That's what we need God to do, to open hearts so that when the news of Jesus Christ is given that people can respond. Why? They've been given life. God has opened their hearts. God has made them alive. Well, we're moving on to the solution before we get there. Well, that's the first thing, is the problem. That's the dark black cloth. But Paul does move on to the solution. And we see the solution really in verses 5 to 10. If the first three or four, uh, well, the first three verses of the problem, we're going to come back to verse 4. But really the solution here is in verse 5. And the solution is a glorious truth. But here's the ring that shows off the diamond that I want us to look at in a bit. Here's the ring that holds it all. This is what God does. Verse 5. He made us alive with Christ. God makes us and gives us life. We were dead in our sins. Christ, God, makes us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead, God made us. God did something. He made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, we were still sinning. We're still sinning now. God has made us alive. That's what he has done. Uh, This passage is all about the grace of God. Undeserved favour. We were sinners. We're still sinners. We still sin. But God has made us alive. God has done it. All glory to God. It's not about Paul, the preacher, or Paul, the church planter, or any evangelist, or preacher, or anybody else on the TV, or or anywhere. It's all about what God has done. God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. He does it all. And he raised us up with Christ, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ. That's that newness of life. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Again, you see his grace here. When God raises Jesus to life, he raises all his people to life as well. All his followers. New life. We're dead. Life. Jesus Christ on that cross, dying. Dead. But given life. And you're given life too. And seated us with him. Imagine. Perhaps a Wales fan, rugby fan next Saturday, is it? Twickenham. Wales playing England, and you're given 
VIP seats. And you can be seated, uh, seated next to the greatest VIP of all time, whoever that is in your imagination. And you're seated next to them and you can talk to them. How wonderful. What a great day you'd have. That is nothing compared to what God does. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him. Seated. Past tense, notice. Seated. That when Christ was seated, that we are seated with him because we are in him. This has already taken place. It is certain and sure. Paul is so certain and sure of these things that he's writing in the past tense. That as Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, so we are seated with him because we are in him. So certain. There was a, a photo a few months ago doing the rounds on the internet and it was a, a kitchen, glass kitchen cupboard. And uh, the kind of the, it was falling from the wall. And uh, the glass cupboard was kind of like that. And the door was there and all the china the fine china was in behind, in the cupboard, uh, in the, this glass cupboard. And the doors were shut still. China was all intact, but at the same time it was broken. If you've ever heard of Schrodinger's cat, it's that uh, scenario. In other words, the china plates are broken. They are. The plates are broken, even though they're still intact. Because to use them, you've got to open the door. And once you open the door, because of the angle of the cupboard, they're going to smash. So they're as good as smashed. They're as good. You can't use them. Because once you open the door, that's it. Or you could try and catch. But, but in this scenario, you can't. You can't catch them. So they're intact, but they're guaranteed to smash as soon as you want to use them. Paul is saying that here. This is a certainty. You may not experience being seated with Christ here, but it is true. You are. That's the certainty of it. He has raised you up. He has seated you with Christ. It is more certain and more secure than those china plates smashing. More definite because it is the living God who is declaring and revealing this truth for us. These truths that Paul is telling us about the follower of Jesus Christ, about the Christian being given new life, being uh, raised up with Christ, being seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. They are so true that, as one theologian put it this way, he said, for this truth to change, then Christ would have to be sucked out of heaven and put back into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. That that truth of you being seated with Christ is as true as Jesus Christ rising from the dead and being seated with him, and because he is, you are with him as well. Christ will never be sucked back into the tomb. It's an empty tomb. He's a risen saviour. And those truths about his people, about us, are as true as those truths about Jesus Christ. Because these things are all due to the grace of God. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ tonight, then we don't take pride in what God has done in us. We take pride, we don't take pride in our deep faith. We read that even our faith is the gift from God. We don't take pride in the blessings that we've received, the goodness that God has given to us. Everything we have has been given because of the grace of God. 
and we receive it with empty hands and with thankful hands and with hands full of praise to God. Because the third thing we see tonight is the reason for all these things. And here's the glorious truth. We've looked at the ring, but here's the diamond that is on that glorious ring. And here's the reason, and it's found in verse 2, and here's our glorious truth. But because of his great love for us, great love, not just love, God has a great love for us. God who is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. You know, the Bible says about God only one thing that he is rich in. Only one thing. And it's this, that he's rich in mercy. We live in a day where there is no mercy. No mercies on the t-shirts and on car stickers. People don't experience mercy in everyday life. One mistake and you're out, you're gone, you're cancelled. But that's not our God. He is rich. You know, some people who meet, perhaps they're rich. And they're rich because they're, they're tight. They are frugal, you know, look after the pennies. Pounds look after themselves. And they're rich because of that. So you won't get a penny out of them in any way, shape or form. Whereas others who are rich are kind of generous and philanthropic and they give so much away. They give away what they have. God is rich. And that is who he is. And it's in the nature of God to be generous with his riches. He gives it away. And his love for us shows that generosity. His great love for us, that's a generous love, isn't it? He doesn't have to love us. He chooses to love us. He doesn't have to love us greatly. He chooses to love us with a great love. That's how he shows his richness and his riches. And he's shown it and demonstrated it. We've seen it already. He made you alive. He raised you up. He seated you with Christ. He is rich in mercy and is not stingy in any way at all. In 1 John, we read there about his lavished love. I always think of that lavish as like the, you know, you have an a, um, a afternoon tea and you have a jam and cream scone. And what do you want with that cream? And the jam. You want it lavished. You don't want a tiny amount, do you? You want a big chunk of it. You want to spoon it out. Lavished. Lots of it. That's God's love. It's lavished. He's not stingy. He's rich and he's generous with his riches. And it is mercy that he is rich in. He's merciful. You know, we all deserve judgment. We've seen that already. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, of God's anger. We deserve God's anger. You know, we, somebody lets you down, you're kind of naturally angry towards them. You're annoyed with them. That's natural. We let God down constantly, day in and day out. Summarize the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, with all you have, all the time. We don't. Love your neighbor as yourself. We don't. We let God down day in, day out. And yet, though we deserve his wrath, He's rich in mercy. He's merciful towards you. Why? Because that's who he is. That's what he's like. He gives us mercy because he is merciful. 
And actually, I was saying earlier, we don't want to be true to ourselves. We don't want to be who we really are. But we do want God to be who he really is. And he is who he really is. And he acts like he really is. And here is who he really is. And here is him being true to himself. He's rich in mercy. That's God being what he is like. That's God being God. Rich in mercy. And the rich mercy that we see here, we've seen. The rich mercy was touched by people. The rich mercy was heard by people. At the incarnation, Jesus Christ comes into the world and it shows us exactly what rich mercy looks like. In terms we can understand. We understand what human beings are like. And here he is. Here's God with flesh, with skin. Here's rich mercy with skin. And look what he's like. Rich mercy touches the lepers. Jesus makes the blind to see. That's rich mercy. He makes the deaf to hear. He makes the lame walk and he raises some people back to life. That's what rich mercy looks like. None of those people deserved anything. But Jesus heals them and shows rich mercy. And you see the rich mercy of God at the cross. That's where you and I really discover the rich mercy of God. The Father's wrath is poured out upon his beloved Son so that his rich mercy is poured out on you and on me. That's the cross. Jesus goes to the cross demonstrating the rich mercy of God as he takes that wrath of his Father upon himself so that you and I just experience instead God's rich mercy for ourselves. The cross is the very epicenter and the epitome of God's rich mercy for you and me. And it's seen in the actions of the Father and the Son. Because it is the rich mercy of God we read here. God who is rich in mercy. Not specifically in Jesus, though we see Jesus' rich mercy. But it is God. It's not that Jesus is full of rich mercy and God the Father isn't. Or that one of the the three persons of the Trinity are rich in mercy and the others aren't? No. It's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and a Father who's full of wrath. God, who is rich in mercy. God the Father, who is rich in mercy. Jesus Christ the Son, who is rich in mercy. The Holy Spirit, who is rich in mercy. God, rich in mercy towards us. That's what he is like like towards you and towards me yes God is just yes God will judge yes because Jesus is the one who's going to be the judge of the living and the dead and we deserve that but he is the God who is is rich in mercy it is a definite truth that God has revealed for us we should not be surprised about this he has not hidden this from us he has revealed it to us front and center God who is rich in mercy. And one day we will understand this more and discover it even more for ourselves in eternity. Because here is the nature of God. If our nature is sinful and therefore we sin, well, God's nature is rich in mercy and therefore he will be rich in mercy. He is being who he is. It's natural to him. 
squandered his mercy? You've squandered it? You've thrown it back in his face? Of course you have. And so have I. But he's rich. He pours it out more and more. It's like wasting a, a billionaire's five-pound note. You waste it. Yeah, you throw it back in his face. But there's so much more to come. Because he's rich in mercy and he pours it out to you. Have you doubted God's mercy? Of course you have. But he is the one who makes us alive, who seats us with Christ when we were dead in sin. That's the richness of God's mercy. Do you feel it this evening? Perhaps you don't. Perhaps you've had a dreadful week or a weekend. Perhaps you felt abandoned. It doesn't alter the truth of who God is and what he's like. He is rich in mercy. It's not about what you feel. It's not even in a sense about what you think. It's about what God has revealed about who he really is and what he's really like. He's rich in mercy. Perhaps you've suffered rejection this past week. Rejection or condemnation or even hatred. And that is tough to take, isn't it? It is tough to take. But Jesus Christ was rejected. And he was condemned. And he was even hated. And he knows what real suffering is. But he is rich in mercy towards you and towards what you're going through. And he was rejected, condemned and hated for you. And he was willing to do that for you. Why? Because he's rich in mercy. Have you experienced that for yourself? Do you realise this truth, this great and glorious truth about the living God? The one who makes us alive. The one who raises us up. The one who seats us in Christ in the heavenly places. He does all that for you because of who he is. He's the God who is rich in mercy. Do you know that tonight? Tell yourself that this week as you live for Jesus Christ. And when you do let him down, and you will, remember, he is a God who is rich in mercy.